I, I, I expect, I hope, uh, that it's uh, at somewhere in the future, a government will recognise the power of sport to change lives. They will recognise this isn't just about physicality. It's about emotional wellness. It's about social interaction. It's about psychological balance. It's all the things that we talk about and that society struggles with. And it's a counter to many of the things that are actually affecting our kids' lives. It is so important. Well, a very, very warm welcome to the 100th episode of the Supporting Champions podcast. A milestone for us, having started the podcast just under four years ago, and I truly hope that you've enjoyed all the episodes, and if you listen to them all, then kudos to you, and thanks for being with us along the journey. If you're new in, then hello, and and I kind of envy you, actually. There is a back catalogue just waiting for you to tune into and, and soak up. And actually, when I look back now, only a few sections of the conversations that we've had are specific to the time that they were recorded in, and... And so I think the discussions are pretty evergreen, so please do enjoy. It's been such a joy to connect with so many great minds, thinkers, achievers, aspirers, supporters of others, and I'm truly humbled and I want to thank everyone who's been on the show. So I wanted to say at this point a huge thank you to Rachel who caringly curates the podcast episodes, and Rachel does this with a coach's eye for not only the dialogue, but also for the deeper motivations, the passions, the concerns, and the insights that people share in those conversations. So thank you to Rachel. So where do we go from here? Uh, I'm going to follow this episode with some reflections from the 100 conversations. And starting relatively soon, we'll be putting some of the interviews out on YouTube so you can watch them too, or at least listen to them via a different medium. Then Rachel and I are going to take a bit of time to reflect and think what next. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on what you think we should be doing. If you're a regular listener, then your thoughts and feedback would be greatly appreciated. There's a survey in the show notes, and if you could just take 90 seconds to fit it in and help us shape the content of the future, that would be amazing. But enough of that for now. 100th episode, let's hear from this week's guest interview. Sue Campbell trained as a PE teacher, guiding inner city children in Moss Side in Manchester to embrace sport. And if anyone knows anything about that area, you can understand the challenge that she would have had, but that she excelled in that environment is true testament to her character. From humble yet so powerfully formative beginnings, Sue has become one of the most effective and infectious leaders in modern sport. Sue founded the National Coaching Foundation. She founded the Youth Sport Trust. She became a chair of UK sport from its early beginnings to becoming a world superpower. And Sue now leads the English Women's FA in pursuit of growing the women's game. Her achievements are profound and truly pioneering, having led the development of support for coaches, children, whole system-wide sport development, And recognition has come thick and fast for Sue. She has had 11 honorary degrees. She's appointed Baroness Campbell of Loughborough and Dame Commander on the New Year's Honours list in 2020. Throughout her career, Sue has infused teams, organisations and the people within them to become better. Lift the standards, all in service of celebrating the power of sport to affect lives. 
show us that things are possible and to do so with deep respect for each other. Amazing. Sue, thank you so much. This is our 100th podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Um, it was, um, I had a good old think about who I'd love to chat to for the 100th podcast. And given the, the list of people that we've had from high performers, high, high achievers, people who've strived and perhaps not quite made it, but have got lessons to share, some researchers, some coaches, um, I just thought, actually, it probably needs somebody who's got perspective, uh, got perspective and has got a dose of inspiration. Every time I speak to you, uh, that's what you provide. So um, it was an obvious choice for me. Thank you so much. It's, it's my pleasure. Very flattered. Thank you. <laughs> can, I, can I start with a, a big question, uh, which sort of speaks today, really? Uh, the, the recent events of the last couple of years... Uh, all the challenges that we've had in our lives, the the pandemic, political division, global challenges, and and how are you viewing sport through that lens? I, I think I've, it's really made me question, but also really reminded me of the importance of sport. Yeah, I think it's a very, really important question. Um, you know, on the one hand, you could see it as something trivial in in against some of the major challenges we've got. And in the other, you, you could see it as something that helps shape lives and, and change attitudes, whether that's inspiring people, whether it's just getting people physically active again. Um, you know, we know that physically active people tend to often be emotionally better. So sometimes, you know, getting people to take exercise when they're emotionally traumatized or down or depressed is, is a great antidote to those things. But sport itself, I think, you know, through the through the pandemic, um, I think people clung on to what, whatever sport was available. So that, that you know, the whole fact that we kept men's football going, unfortunately, we couldn't keep the women's game going, but the men's kept going. People found that something to hang on to. It gave people a sense of normality, and something was actually happening. So, sort of as at the elite end, I think it can give a sense of inspiration and normality. You know, things are continuing despite all the trauma. And at the grassroots end, I think sport is just an enormously important outlet. And, you know, I, I certainly I think for young people in our schools, uh, not only do we need to catch up in terms of their academic work, we need to catch up in terms of their exercise and, and their physical activity, uh, because I think it's such an important part of education. Yeah. And, and personally, did you feel that that dichotomy? There's the exercise and the rationale from you know, one of the interesting things with when people are saying you can only have one hour of exercise a day, <laughs> everyone's like, right, I'm having that. People got active, didn't they? It was, it was actually inspired yeah, people did. to take the yeah. exercise. But that sense yeah. of... Parks still and in, people fall. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Take, sort of threaten to take something away or constrain it and everyone fills, fills up the void. But that sense of we're investing and prioritising activities that that don't have a a very specific outcome to the challenges that we have, but it offers us a feeling, it offers us a sense of escapism, that that hope. Uh, did you feel that contradiction yourself at all? Um, I think part of what I was doing was sort of battling with 
trying to get us through the women's game through what was a terribly difficult challenge and making the right decisions for number one, the player welfare, <laughs> you know, making sure our players were at the centre of our decisions. Uh, and then secondly, having to deal with, you know, COVID testing, finding money for tests, et cetera, et cetera. So there was a part of me that was just getting on with daily business, if, if you know what I mean. But I think when we did get the chance to, to reflect, um, so for example, the Tokyo uh, Olympics and Paralympics, I think people saw that as a, a really inspiring, almost new beginning. And although for the athletes, it was very COVID restricted and it certainly wasn't like a normal Olympic or Paralympic experience, for those of us watching it, for those of us spectating it, I think it was a real joyful, uplifting feeling that, you know, things will get back to normal and this is all happening. And the joy of watching some of those people win and their excitement and the thrill of it, it just lifts you out of your day-to-day -day existence, which I think everybody needed. You know, being I've worked at home now for a year and a half and uh, two years now nearly, and it, and it feels it there. You can feel very closed in. You can feel very alone, and you can feel very down. And just being able to watch that and experience that was kind of for me. Um, a, a real opportunity to feel uplifted, energised and ready to go again. That's that's how it affected me personally. Mm. There was that tremendous sense of release, wasn't it? People yeah. Yeah. Really celebrating what they do best. Yeah. You said there about going again, and um, I was really inspired to see when you took up the, the role of head of women's football at the FA um, in 2016. Having, having led UK sport, uh, the NCF, uh, Youth Sport Trust. Uh, what what motivated you to to go again? You mean when I should have gone to the golf course? <laughs> well, I, I'm not, not saying that, but it was it was just fan, you know seeing the announcement and thinking, fantastic, Sue's in there. Um, but also just a, a you know a hat tip to oh. Sue's in there again, <laughs> you know, as in you're, you're, yeah. you're applying your trade, you're, you're attempting to, to develop a system again. What motivated you? Um, I, look, I, I've, I've spent so much of my professional life, which, you know, um, passionate about sport changing lives men and women's lives but in particular you know as we've seen less participation for girls many of the challenges that girls women face in society uh, I, I when Martin asked me Martin Glenn asked me if I would go in and do this my initial reaction was no I, I've, I, I don't need another challenge like this I don't need another Everest so to speak I've, I've done it having been at UK sport but the more I reflected on it and the more I thought you know, the Football Association, the FA, football as a whole, is a very powerful brand. Is this a chance to, um, you know, really take the power of that brand and affect massive change in girls and women, not just as players, not just for health and emotional well-being, but as leaders, people who can coach, people who can referee, people in the boardroom? Why does that matter? because it's a sport that's spoken about in so many homes that probably don't ever read public legislation or think about equality. And, and this is just about equalising. It's about giving girls the opportunity to play, as boys have, giving girls an opportunity to coach, referee and administer sport. 
And the more I thought about it, the more I got excited by the potential. Um, so I, I said to Martin that I would do three days a week for a couple of years, pull a strategy together, and then I'd be gone. That was five and a half years ago, and here I am now doing six days a week. And um, <laughs> but but you know I I've I've enjoyed it. It's been massively challenging. Um, it hasn't always been enjoyable. Um, it, it, it's been tough, but it's incredibly rewarding. You know, like any great challenge, the rewards that come with it are enormous. And, and you have to push through on those days when you're thinking, what on earth am I doing this for? Um, because we all get them. Um, and uh, it's, been a, it's been an incredible experience. And I wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have missed it. So it's been like, a, you know, another Everest, really. I'm, we're, not, we're not at the top yet. We're only at sort of camp three, probably. We've still got a way to go to get to the top of the mountain in terms of the women's game. But we're certainly on the journey and we've now the confidence. Well, first of all, we can see the top of the mountain, which when I first came, it was shrouded in mist. We now know where we're going um, and the challenge is now to get there, which is a very different kind of challenge. And so what what is that? Have you got a have you what is the the vision of the summit there? But also um, I'm keen to get your perspective as to What's the what are the major base camps that you've achieved along the the way that you've been? So five, the last five years or so, what are the accomplishments that you can look back and think the game has progressed in that time, and we can we can see that objectively? Yeah, I think when I came um, to the FA, uh, the, the game had been driven forward by what I'd call pioneers individuals who'd done some great things, whether that was in coaching or development or um, uh, all the various aspects. But it, it wasn't something that sat at the heart of the Football Association's strategy or vision for the future. So my job was, first job was to create momentum. So rather than come up with a, a, a fully embracing strategy for the women's game, in 2017, we produced Game Plan for Growth, and we only targeted three things, doubling participation, doubling the fan base, uh, and growing the professional game. Um, and that's what we've done. You know, between 20 and 24, we, we doubled participation. We massively increased the fan base. Um, still a job to do getting that fan base to come through the gates, but in terms of people watching eyes on the game, it, it's massive. Um, and, you know, we did turn the league professional, full, full first ever uh, country in Europe to have a full-time professional women's league. And the professional game is growing from strength to strength. So that, that, that was the momentum. How could we get, how could we get people's eyes on the game? How could we get focus on what we were doing? How could we drive you know, an ambition within the FA as well as out with the FA that we could do something special. So having gained momentum in that first plan, which was 2017 to 2020, we've pulled together a full strategy now, which covers every aspect of the game. And I guess the big, the big pieces for that, or the vision, if you like, of the summit is trying to give equal opportunity to girls to play football in schools, so thanks to, to Barclays, we're in something like 12,500 schools, but our intention is to be in 95% of schools by 2024. That means providing girls an opportunity to play curriculum, lunchtime, after school. We've 
uh, developing a community offer, which is football for fun, as opposed to football for competition. So it sits alongside. So whether you're motivated, just play with your friends or you actually want to compete, both pathways are available to you. And then the other big piece is a newly designed, thought through uh, talent pathway, which will help those girls who have the ambition to play professionally to really see a very clearly signposted route way. We've got one at the minute, but it's just not clear and it's it's not at the quality and, uh, and clarity we need. And then at the top end of the game, it's really to make sure that the Super League and Championship are, well, the statement we've made is the best professional league for women in the world. So we've had a good look at what is the best, you know, what are the best professional leagues so we can benchmark. So really it's, We've got real clarity in every part of the game. And alongside that, of course, what we're trying to do in coaching, what we're trying to do in refereeing, and what we're trying to do in governance to run the game. So the, the strategy now is real clarity. You know, you can really see the snow on the mountaintop now. You can see what we're trying to get to. Uh, the momentum was sort of getting us to camp three and then stopping a minute and having a look. OK, what have we learned and what do we need to do now? So I think you'd now say we have a strategy, 10-year plan. Uh, it'll, it'll evolve and change, obviously, throughout the time, but th- that's, that's where we are. I'm almost drawing parallels to our shared experiences in the UK sport Olympic and Paralympic system, whereby in those early days, the, the system was forming in the late 90s and early 2000s, that, that, that drive and that infrastructure coming through. We had... Comparison points with particularly Australia, who the, the institute system was was going well. It was world leading in terms of its outlook and its performance. And so we were looking at that thinking maybe we should copy that. <laughs> uh, that, that sense of, oh, there's a system over there that's just sitting alongside. We should copy some of that. But actually in the reality of those, particularly in the early 2000s, we sort of borrowed principles and we borrowed ideas as much as or used it as a as a competitor to to vie against have you got a similar approach where you're looking at the men's game saying we'll take that from the men's game but we'll set our own new course and identity in the women's game yeah i think the the, the difference with the uk sport one is and and i learned this early on at the national coaching foundation when you know it was just me and uh one other person working at the foundation and, and the idea was we were going to produce the best coach development strategy, you know, education system in the world. And uh, I had a blank sheet of paper. And I remember going to see Jeff Gowan in Canada. He'd put the Canadian system together and then uh, an amazing guy called Rainer Martins in the USA. And what I learned really quickly from those was people design systems that fit their culture and the Australian system fitted its culture. Institutes in each of the states and then this mega institute in the middle. Um, I, 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 there was so much to gain from the Australian Institute. You know, world-class sports science, world-class sports medicine, great coaches, super environment, great analysis. But we weren't built to have an institute in the middle of the M6 or something. So it was taking those principles and bringing them back. The difference here in men's football is it has been built in our culture. 
Um, so there are lots of things about the men's game that are worthy of, of copying. However, as it's evolved to be at the top end, more about entertainment than what I might call pure sport, and some will argue with that, but you know, it is now entertainment. The, the volume of people going to watch games, the broadcast deals, the commercial deals, they're phenomenal. So that changes the nature of what you're watching to some extent. The women's game is nowhere near that yet. In my mind, and again, people might argue with me, it's pure sport. It hasn't arrived in that world of entertainment. So it's easier to retain some of the the basic values of respecting referees or, uh, you know, not feigning injury or many of the things that perhaps happen because we're on a stage entertaining a very large audience doesn't happen in the women's game. And we're working very hard to take what is good about the men's game, but also to make sure that those things we don't want to copy, uh, we're not copying. So uh, we have a little document at the moment called Treasuring Our Treasures, and, and it's looking at the women's culture and kind of unwrapping it, you know, why it's evolved, looking at our history, who were the driving forces, what was their ambition, what were they trying to do for women in society as a whole as well as for themselves and for the game. And how do we want that to mirror the way we work with football in the future? So, yes, we're taking, of course, we're learning from everybody. I mean, the American football system is another, for us, women's uh, American football is huge. They are, without question, the world number one. So you're crazy not to look at great systems and understand them. But what you can never do is lift them up and plant them in your own country. You've got to look at what makes them successful and how do you apply that. And, and I think that's – and the other thing about UK sport was um, there were some big uh, shifts we needed to create which had needed political support in order to get us to a place where we could compete effectively. So one simple example was when I arrived at UK sport, we were only responsible for the last four years of funding for elite athletes – and Peter Keane, who was the architect really of all our success in London 2012, said to me, Sue, you can't, you need eight years. But the other four years were managed by Sport England, Sport Scotland, Sports Gas for Wales, Sport Northern Ireland. And so I had to go and do quite a lot of politics to say, we want to manage all eight of these. And we're going to get more investment, which will allow you to invest in the talent system below that. Um, and that might sound easy, but it took me, gosh, I don't know, 18 months, I think, at least. So there were some big decisions we made which were not copied from anybody but were part of a real analysis of what it took to be the best and how did we make, how did we make that possible for people. <clears throat> so I'm hearing in both of those examples a long-term ev- evolution that the, the moment the women's game isn't at a stage and an age or of development that is appropriate to put the same things in place that the men have got from that entertainment and that scale and infrastructure in the same way that for you to be, for the Olympic team, the Paralympic team to be the most successful or to, to, to get the most out of the system that we have, it needed a, a longer term plan for the athletes, for the sports, for the performance directors, for the sports scientists like me to be able to work to. Yeah. I I think, I think the difference between um, 
2000 and 2000 and 2004 when we were 10th in the medal table and then Beijing where we were fourth, London third, Rio second, was that we we had understood what it took to be the best and that knowledge was in the whole system. So instead of relying on a few sports to bring us a few medals, we suddenly had it system-wide. And we did that through the performance directors to a large extent, but also by the way we funded, we changed the funding mechanism, we changed the mindset about what we were going to fund. Some people didn't like it. You know, it it, it was payment by results. <laughs> and and it 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 professionalized very rapidly the performance system um and you know the fact that in tokyo we still perform well tells me that the system as a whole has not dropped off it gets what needs to happen in order to achieve success mm. <coughs> how, do you, how do you even and this is almost an impossible question but how do you even go about influencing across down up down everyone every, all stakeholders have got a view well, you you own that bit the four years for example or or whether it's creating the case for uh in, increased infrastructure for women's football or girls football at schools influencing up influencing the, the the team and influencing people who are looking on and, and commentating how do you even go about that well i'm a great believer in one mission one team so if you work to that philosophy, in other words, if, if you are very clear what the objective is, the next thing is how do you get everybody to see the same thing? You know, how do you get everybody to see the mountaintop? So UK sport, 10th in the medal table, and we, I asked Pete what, what he thought was possible, and he said, I think by London we could be fourth in the medal table, and this is how we'd do it. <laughs> Again, the architect of, of what we needed to do. My job was to persuade people to come on that journey with us. And there was a lot of cynicism. Oh, you've got to be joking now. You know, you're not going to, you know, even our, even our colleagues in UK sports said, oh, no, no, that's a bit unrealistic. No, 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 it's not. That's where we're going. And so I, I think it's about being able to articulate the vision in a way which is ambitious, but very real, so that people can go, oh, okay, maybe I can, maybe I can join that, that vision because you can show them some the steps you're going to need to take to do that. And, and I think if you're talking to people who are very cynical or non-believers, I think you have to move into a different kind of style. So, you know, on the one hand, you're selling a vision. But when you're meeting cynics or people who don't buy it, you've got to start being a buyer, not a seller. In other words, you've got to understand what it is You've got to talk to them enough to understand what it is that's help, not helping them see the vision. So you start, instead of selling, which, you know, they just put the wall up and go, no, don't get it. You start to say, well, okay, explain that to me. Why do you think that's not possible? And, and, and what's your approach to that? And what would you do? And by the time you finished, if you're skillful enough, it's facilitation, really, you facilitate them to where you want to go. So I, I think it's different strokes for different folks <laughs> but it's about the ability to get everybody lined up on one clear this is what we're going to do and even you know not always knowing quite how at the beginning but getting getting the okay let, let's go for this 
And then being very open, really, with people and transparent, you know, on the journey. I don't know if you remember the boards we had up at UK Sport at each end of the room. We had Mm. Olympics at one end and Paralympics at the other. And we literally got the media in every three months and showed them, you know, these are red, these are green, these are amber. Sports weren't that comfortable with that either. But it, it, it was a way of saying there's going to be no surprises here. You know, if they're green, they're telling us they're on their medal target. If they're amber, there's something wrong with the system. If they're red, they're in trouble. Our job at UK Sport was to spend our time on red and amber, not on green. <laughs> Whereas in the previous environment, we'd always spent our time on green. Oh, these are going to be the successful ones. We give a lot more money and we give a lot more sport. And I, I was in that. Now, you know, we might differentiate financially, but we've got to put real energy into the red and the amber. And so by the time we kind of got to London, you know, that board was pretty green. They were they were pretty well on. The only sport that still was on amber, ironically, was swimming. And that and that's exactly how they performed, amber. So, you know, and, and there were a whole host of reasons for that. And uh, and I think that openness and that transparency and that not hiding things, not being afraid to, you know, put your head above the parapet and say, this isn't good enough. Not to pull anyone down ever, but to, to to create the ambition, we've got to go, we've got to go again. You know, we came out of London and within three months, we were talking about how we could do better. You know, we'd done a real analysis. Where hadn't it worked? Where had it worked? What could we do? Where were the challenges? You know, were we investing enough in para? Was para slowly slipping? Because if you remember in London, it slipped down a couple of, of notches. So there were a whole set of issues that... And that's that's for me is is what makes world class. World class is not just being good. It's always believing you're not good enough. <laughs> it's searching for the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. It's a restlessness that never leaves you. You just want to know what next, what next, what next. If you ever get to the point where you're not restless, you're probably going backwards. <laughs> and that's the truth of performance sport, really. Yeah. And just to unpack a bit of that, I think that there's um, that sense of here's the vision, here's that Everest, here's the summit, that articulation of the of the future, which you do so well as a leader, but also that quite grounded leadership behavior that I'm hearing around listening and questions as a as a as a way of engaging. And um, I remember a similar sort of approach after 2012 of that lull and this idea of winning more medals and we're all thinking oh, we don't even know where it is okay it's in brazil that might be fun um but but that idea of looking around and everybody's thinking we can't do more, more. with the yeah. same yeah and rather than my approach of just thinking let's push let's go let's let's um let's intensify things was actually to listen and that in- sense of engagement of well, I'm being heard for the first time, which, which, which feels novel. My ideas are being valued, but actually, it unearthed so many uh, real deep insights from people on the ground who are working with that performer. I think if we did this, we would we would get that, and it and it unlocked a whole series of insights and intelligence that we were able to roll out for for 2016. Um, I'm hearing a similar similar approach of engage engaging the workforce making them feel connected with that vision but a simple action of listening 
Yeah, look, I, I, when I, I remember when I first went to the FA and, and uh, Martin had brought me in, obviously, to do this strategy for the women's game. And every time he passed me in a corridor, he says, is that strategy done yet? And I'd say, no, not yet. No, not yet. No, not yet. And he goes, what are you doing? I said, I'm listening, Martin. And he goes, just get on. And I, no, I'm listening, Martin. And I, for six months, all I did was, to be honest, was, was li- let people tell me what was going on what the barriers were, what the challenges were, um, and slowly, and to begin with, that just felt like a, a massive, almost confusing array of stuff. But as the time passed, it started to crystallise in my head as to where we needed to go. And by the time I got to sort of six months, seven months, I'd got a kind, I'd got the mist and started slightly lift off the mountain. I hadn't quite, couldn't quite see the mountain, but I'd certainly come off the beach. And I was kind of standing on the cliff top, <laughs> looking up at the mountain. Um, and as I started to unwrap that and started to try those ideas out on people, what if? What if we did this? What would you think about that? People, oh, no, that won't work. And you think, well, why, why do you think that'll work? <laughs> I started to unwrap it for another few months. And then I, I sat down one day and said, right, I'm ready. I wrote a plan. And I, I pushed it out to my colleagues and say, right, have a look. Are you happy? Can you join in with this now? And everybody, oh, yeah, that was my idea. Oh, yeah, that was my idea. (laughs) Because what you're doing is you're not just reflecting your own thoughts, you're reflecting conversations. And the moment people think they are in the plan, they own the plan. It doesn't matter if they've only got three words in. (laughs) They feel the plan is their plan. And so the minute the plan is, is truly a joint venture, which it has to be, and a truly expression of everything you've heard, all the listening you've done, then people people go oh i'm behind this i can get i can do this and then and then the next trick is to is to get the resources to do the job right and that's never easy for any of us so um but but slowly bit by bit i was able to kind of turn what was essentially a vision into a business plan to get the resources we needed and i i'd say you know the women's game absolutely could always do with more money but we're in a very much different place than we were when I came in in terms of resources and the level of investment and the kind of commercial partners we now have uh, which we just didn't have when I first came. You've alluded to a couple of big challenges such as acquiring resources or um, getting the economics in place or convincing uh, the politicians for example. What have been the biggest leadership challenges you've faced? In this particular job or generally? Just just overall, oh, yeah, I, yeah, in your experiences. Well, I think my first leadership role was at the National Coaching Foundation. Prior to that, I had done a series of things which were shaping my philosophy, my values, and what I believed it was all about. So teaching, lecturing, four years in the inner city, working with people, who were disadvantaged using sport as a vehicle to change lives. And suddenly I found myself at the National Coaching Foundation as the new, you know, as a chief executive. Um, it, was a, it was a grand title because it was, as I say, uh, uh, Gene, Vaud- <laughs> Gene Vorderman was the only other person. Carol Vorderman. We'll start mom. somewhere. Was it <laughs> Carol, really? Yeah, Carol Vorderman's mum was my secretary. Um, oh, someone to do the numbers. Oh, she was, <laughs> hey, listen, she was a lot more than that. She was a very, very resourceful, special woman. She was very good. So we worked as a, as a two, really, to get the thing going. And I learned some really good skills there about 
how to go and get resources in to do things and how to share this. But I, <clears throat> I was still learning a leadership. I was definitely learning my leadership. And I got some of that really wrong. <clears throat> and I didn't always cover myself in glory. Um, so when I started the Youth Sport Trust, I was able, as you all are when you go to a new job, you can kind of redefine yourself. So I kind of redefined me. Um, and again, started with just myself and one other person in a in one office, in one room, uh, and slowly started to build something. Um, and um, those two were building from the grassroots up. And you don't realise when you're doing that, you're growing your culture. You don't you don't realise you, you 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 in a sense how you are is the culture because you don't. That's kind of partly what's happening as you grow a business. And then, so the first real time I walked into something that I hadn't given birth to, if you like, was UK <laughs> sport. And I I found that hard. I kind of went round and I, I looked and I talked to everybody. I, I tried to speak to everybody in the building and just spend time. Who are you? What do you do? How do you do it? What are the challenges? You know, the same sort of things that I'd done before. But one of the biggest challenges was... How, how did you take an organisation that in their own minds was now successful? You know, there'd been 36 in Atlanta. We were 10th in Sydney. And that's when I arrived in 2003. It looked like we were going to be 10th again in Athens. And I asked them, were we good? And they said, yeah, because we were 36 in Atlanta. And I thought, well, I've never wanted to be 10th in my life. How, how do you get them from that place to where I want them to be, which is far more ambitious? And that was about changing a mood and a culture and unlocking creativity. And there were some great people in there, but it needed it needed a different environment. It needed it needed a recognition that we couldn't talk world class. We had to be it. We had to think what was it going to take for us to drive this vision and that this vision couldn't be ours. It had to be a shared vision. And while we have the money, which always makes people think they have the power, you don't really have the power. You have the investment to drive a shared vision. And, and I think that that cultural shift was probably, and some of the politics, oh, my gosh, the politics were, uh, I mean, four home countries, challenges around, you know, early days where, you know, was UK sport the slave or was it the leader? Who ran who? How did it work? What was going on? And again, it was about creating collaboration, understanding that we're all together in this and that it wasn't about me telling them or them telling me. It was about us working together to find solutions. So I think politics definitely was huge and, and culture was huge at UK sport. And then system development while Pete very much was the architect, it took the politics that I had to do to give him the resources and the shape he wanted, which, so it was, a, it, you know, and we had Liz in there as well in the mix, Liz Nicholl, who, who just was so respected by the governing bodies. She already brought them almost to the table because they respected Liz so much. So the three of us really made, a, I think, um, a shift in culture and, and behaviours. At the FA, um, I think it's been culture as well, definitely, but it's been winning hearts and minds, really. Um, you know, the, the, the 
the men's game is so big, so strong, so powerful. Uh, you know, it's it's massively resourced. It's incredibly successful. It's a massive business. And here are we, you know, the sort of, as they, you know, I, the way I described it when I first spoke to the board was, look, men's football is like an oak tree. You stood there, you've got all these branches, you're very formidable, you're very visible, and everybody can see who you are. And the women's game is like a sapling. <laughs> and it's sitting underneath the oak tree. And it hasn't decided yet whether it wants to be an oak tree or a different kind of tree. And my job's to dig it up, put it under its in its own light, and let it grow. And you can see these people look at me and think, this woman's off her rocker. But uh, that's what that was my analogy, and that's what I've tried to do, which is not try and imitate the oak tree, is to learn from the oak tree and to, to you know, register and recognise its strength. But it's to try and get people to understand we have to grow the women's game in its own light, in its own style, in its own way. And that's really hearts and minds stuff, you know. And, and I still have people who jokingly will, you know, pick issue with anything I say at the board meeting. I mean, and, and now it's done in a fun way. I mean, initially it wasn't as funny. But now it's, you wouldn't expect me not to ask you this question, would you? <laughs> so I go, no, I wouldn't. I'd be disappointed <laughs> if you didn't. Um, so, but but you have to, those are things that, and I, again, I just, uh, the way I described it to people who knew me was, you know, if you go to a party and you're a bit late and you go in and it's not your kind of party and you kind of think, oh, this isn't for me. You've got two choices, really. One is you say, thanks a lot, I'm off. And the other is you go and sit in the corner, you get yourself a nice glass of wine, you sit in the corner and you wait and see if anybody comes over to talk to you and slowly you gather a gang and then you start to enjoy the party. The rest is going on over here somewhere, <laughs> right? And I say that's a bit like the women's game, right? I've slowly, you know, like a magnet, people have come into the corner with me and people now are really excited about the women's game. They're starting to see it as a jewel in the crown. They're starting to see it as something that can affect massive societal change. And you find like-minded people who want to sit in your corner. And then slowly you discover that actually the rest of the party is starting to look at you because you're starting to change things. It but what to dance can, a bit. Yeah. But what you can't do is go in and say, I don't think this party's right. I think you all need to, that's never going to work in a million years. So it's, it's kind of the subtlety, really, of change. So mm. I guess my hearts and minds would be the biggest one there. And, that, and that's, that takes time, it takes patience, and it takes incredible resilience because there are times when you think, I'm not making any headway here at all. But it's, it's partly what you learn, isn't it, as a professional as you go through life, that you don't always get what you want straight away. Yeah, and no, I can see that, and that really links to the, the the idea of NCF Youth Sport Trust, where you, it was your party. You set the tone. You put, yeah. you chose the music, yeah. and Correct. when you go into a different party, you're now starting to have to work out how does this party go and and start to meet a few people. A bit unfair potentially, but what what would be one of your proudest moments if you had to go back in time? If you view to replay a day. And I've also got a future-focused one as well, if, if I could. Uh, proudest, I think, you know, I, the thing that, that, that touches me, moves me, is when I see people, young people, people achieving their ambitions 
and that I know somewhere I've played a small part in helping that happen because that's that's why I do it, right? And and I, and that was set very much of that first job, teaching in Moss Side, thinking my job was to teach netball and discovering my job was to teach young people. <laughs> And learning that it was no good giving them netball if netball was an absolute no-no to them. It was about working with them and, and understanding that if you met them halfway, that you could really affect their self-esteem, their self-worth. And, and so that's kind of stayed burning in me throughout, whether that's working with elite people or whatever, or young people. But those two worlds of young people is, is a heart thing. Elite sport is a head thing for me. It's fascinating to me. I, I kind of, I find the whole thing of trying to create an environment where people come to be their absolute best really intriguing. But my heart thing is I just want to see kids happier, healthier, fitter, emotionally well. So I guess the moment when those two worlds came together was that sort of opening ceremony at the Olympics in 2012, where we had the young people take the, um, flames off, you know, the, the the well-known athletes, but these were young people and they were sports leaders and they were aspiring youngsters and they ran around and then they lit the flame. And I think that moment where my two worlds, if you like, suddenly were visibly in touch with one another, you know, the inspiration of the Olympics and the the youth of tomorrow being part of that inspirational moment, I guess that was pretty special for me. Um, alongside the Queen jumping out the helicopter, of course, but that that but that, <laughs> that was a pretty special moment for for me because it was like watching my two worlds happen together. And and most of my life, I've either been in one world or the other. And in football, the joy for me is I'm in both worlds again, you know, because I'm responsible all the way through. So, you know, I'll see great videos of the work we're doing with inner city kids in football, and then I'll be with the England women you know, at the moment, winning their various games. So I I think there is a joy for me in that virtuous circle of inspiration, driving participation, providing opportunity, growing, succeeding. That that virtuous circle is 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 what excites me. And and that's definitely my my key moment was that London twenty twelve one. But you you it comes full circle in the sense that those two worlds everybody in the world could connect with that of the proven performers the the, the role models and the, and tomorrow but as you say the queen jumping out of the, the helicopter which was quintessentially a british sort of quirk with along with side mr bean and and so on as but as you spoke to that that's a system over there in canada or australia we've got to make it our own we've got to make it something that speaks to our identity and then so last question then sue um, 50 years ahead what would you sure. expect to see not not necessarily what you hope because because hope could potentially be a well maybe but what would you expect to see uh, in sport well it's hard to separate the hope bit from the expect bit um, I, I, I expect I hope uh, that it's, uh, <laughs> oh, right. uh, somewhere very good, very good. in the future, a government will recognise the power of sport to change lives. They will recognise this isn't just about physicality. It's about emotional wellness. It's about social interaction. It's about psychological balance. 
It's all the things that we talk about and that society struggles with. And it's a counter to many of the things that are actually affecting our kids' lives. It is so important. And I would expect that eventually a government would understand that and make sure that our physical education school sports system is the best in the world, which it is not at the moment and is deteriorating. So my expectation is that at some point, somebody has got to recognise this and do something about it. In terms of individual sports, um, I think, well, I expect that the modernisation of sport, which includes the diversification and inclusion of people from all parts of our community at every level of the game, whether that's playing, coaching, refereeing, I expect that to no longer be something we have to talk about day in and day out. Um, and that hopefully sport is there representing the very best of behaviours, of social interaction. Um, but I expect that sport will always be a reflection of wider society and, and we cannot expect it to be better than society we live in. What we can expect is for it to truly influence the world we live in and make a, a real difference to the lives of every single person that lives in this amazing country of ours. Amazing. Amazing. Um, well said. And I, I, I expect if you continue to to be that voice, then then we're going to be on a trajectory to that. Um, Sue, you never fail to, to uplift conversation with you is just a shot in the arm so I remember I remember about 2013 2014 you were kind enough to come along to one of our aspiring professional workshop and, and you you spoke you spoke about your experiences you you created that case you created that perspective and that inspiration for those young minds but I remember more than anything actually one of our one of our new leaders, uh, a lady called Emma Ross, who at the time had just started in our system and she came up to me afterwards and said, thank you. Um, she said, thank you for introducing me to someone I can look up to, a true role model. And you've been that for so many people. So thank you so much, Sue. That's my, my pleasure. And, and, and thank you for, for the opportunity to talk to you.